Sorry uh, it took so long to post, if you were looking, maybe you weren't even looking for it, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but it took a while, morning. It took a while to, uh, to post the audio, and uh, why did it take a while? Because I was in New York, that's what it was. So I know on my website, if you've seen it, it says, you know, the, the audio might take up to 48 hours to be posted. Well, I'm a one-man shop here, folks, so <laughs> sometimes it takes a little bit longer. But... Um, we were talking about, we, we took a little bit of a sidebar last week, and I'm going to complete that. Hopefully, those of you who are here remember that, I, that last week's class was really not so much in the main line of the notes. We're going to try to get back that today, but to, to that today. But it was really in, the, in more of a line of the law of Israel versus the law under grace. Now, you may remember, and as you may or may not know, my family goes to second service. So I had no clue of what the sermon was going to be last week. I could not believe, but again, I can believe because it's happened before, but so, so powerfully last week that our discussion of the law was not my intention, but because we had talked about Abram tithing to Melchizedek, and you know the story, I, I, I really thought, because Rachel and I had talked about that, and she said it might be a good idea for you to really amplify what all this means, the law of Israel versus the law of the grace. So I just did that, and then last week, what was that sermon about? I still don't fully understand. I've been thinking about it this week, and if anybody has an idea, let me know. I fully don't understand why God coordinated my class with Pastor Stan's message last week. But it must be for something. And uh, I can tell you, as me and my family, having been under the law of Israel because we thought that was the way we had to be, it is a curse. You don't want to be under the law of Israel. You want to be under the law, which you are if you're a Christian of grace. So we're going to finish up that today. Uh, but I really, what I did also is, is um, the notes, and is Doug here today? Doug King? No. He had copied my notes, the physical papers, but I do have an extended version that I did post. So I, I would really encourage you to take a look at them to get an idea, because it's going to be very, it's going to be so much more important for you to understand that as we move forward, the difference between law and grace. Um, I just want to finish that up. If you turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. What I want to be able to do here is continue along the line. We've defined the law of Israel. Well, we haven't defined it yet because you haven't gotten there yet. But like I said last week, do you remember how many laws God, God himself, never mind what, it, what, what the Pharisees and the, and the rabbis have put on Israel themselves. How many laws did God give Israel? 613. And they are so bound by those laws. Remember that I mentioned last week that even today, when you see a Jew wearing a prayer shawl, there are 613 knots around that prayer shawl because they are so bound by the law. I'm just going to read you something here. As you turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, and just hold your finger there, but listen to this. In Malachi, the last book of the New Testament, remember we were talking about God says, say again? This? Oh, yes, sorry, Old Testament, thank you. You know, nobody else caught that but her. I know you're all listening. Thank you. <laughs> you are listening. Yeah, definitely keep me honest here, because I make mistakes like everybody else does, but I'm talking to you, so my mistakes are amplified. <laughs> I don't like it, but it's got to happen, but thank you. Uh, yeah, so the last book in the Old Testament, which there was a 430-some-odd year, about the 430-year period of silence of God between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which started when John the Baptist came on the scene. But remember in Malachi, it had said, God said to Israel, you have robbed me. And they say back in this, in this um, dialogue, Why, how have we robbed you? 
And what does he say? In tithes and offerings. So the first, at the beginning, in Genesis, we have the first rudiments of the law, which is the tithe from Abraham to Melchizedek. And yet we close the Old Testament with reference to the same law. Isn't that interesting? It's sort of the poster boy for the law, if you will. So in Malachi 4, um, don't turn there, just keep your place in Matthew chapter 5, but at the close of the Old Testament, after all of that about robbing God and so forth, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him out at Horeb for all Israel. Now remember, there's no such thing as a Christian yet here. Now as we move forward, and we also talked, by the way, and I proved it to you in the book of Jeremiah, that the new covenant, is it for us? In reality, was the new covenant for us? It was not. It was for Israel. I read that to you in Jeremiah. You have to understand that because I made it clear last week that if anybody has been under the impression that the church replaced Israel, change your mind and change it quickly. Because Israel has a set of promises that God is still keeping in force and will not lay back from or will not retract. There are promises for us as Christians which are different. Make no mistake about it. And I know there are people who have been brought up in the past, especially in some of the more mainstream churches, that basically makes it known without actually saying it that Israel was replaced by the Christian church. It's not true. So, but if we go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus is saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear. Now, I want you to keep that in mind, because we're going to reference that. Just keep that in mind, that phrase, until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law with the capital L until what? Everything is accomplished. There are two points I want you to see here, both in the reference that says until heaven and earth uh, disappear and until everything is accomplished. Those two terms are in the temporary nature, are in the temporary vein. Think about it. Is heaven and earth ever going to truly disappear? But they will be recreated. Because if you look in Genesis, the, the, the heavens are rolled back as a scroll, right? Will earth ever be totally destroyed? Will it? No. No. It will not be totally destroyed. It will be renewed. The current iteration of earth and the current iteration of the heavens will be, quote-unquote, destroyed because it's not really destroying, but it's renewing. Does that make sense? When you die, are you totally destroyed? You are you already have eternal life, but you're, you still have to be the point of being renewed. It's the same concept. So he's saying here that the law, by the way, Jesus was a Jew. He still is a Jew. But is he under the law of Israel now that he is back in heaven with God? He is not. He's under the law of grace because he made the law of grace for Israel by extension, or for us by extending back to Israel if they would accept it. And as soon as an Israeli, as soon as a Jew accepts the law of grace, is he under the law of Moses anymore? He's not. He become, that's why Paul says, in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Greek. That's the point. 
Verse 19 in Matthew 5. Anyone who breaks one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom that you and I are looking for. The kingdom of heaven is the millennial period, which is the thousand-year reign after the tribulation. Why do you think that thousand-year reign is? When Jesus Christ is king of the earth at that time, king of the Jews again, because the promise of the kingdom on earth to Israel is their promise for them, not for us. This is what he's talking about. Remember, you heard it from Pastor Stan recently. Who is the book of Matthew directed to? The Jews. It is for us to learn from. But we have been in the past, and I know I have in the past, made the mistake that I thought all of the New Testament was written directly for me as a Christian. Wrong. A lot of it is intended for the Jew, but especially Matthew. So you didn't just hear this from me, you heard it from Pastor Stan. So now if you look at that in the context, when he's talking about the law here, he's talking about Israel. So that's why, though, when we make the mistake, we put ourselves under the law and not understanding the distinction. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of whom? the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I just want you to make that point. He's talking about the law of Israel. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. But what about this righteousness? Now, this is the word I want you to, to dwell on for a moment. Remember he says, unless, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will no, no wise enter the physical kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a righteousness that we have to talk about that we also have to attain to enter our kingdom of eternity with God. See, the baseline, the framework of the law and, and its reward has not changed between the physical laws of Israel and the virtual or grace laws, or the or laws, virtual laws under grace, if you will. Here, listen. Now remember, the word righteousness, we just talked about if you don't have righteousness as of the, the scribes and the Pharisees and so on, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's now read what righteousness means to the Christian, not to the physical Jew. Verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. But my righteous one, my righteous one will live by what? The law? Oh, interesting, isn't that? And if he shrinks back, I will, will he not enter the kingdom of heaven? It just says, I will not be pleased with him. Verse uh, 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who, are believe, who believe and, say, and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Isn't that interesting? This is what the ancients were commended for. I read, you already, or, or I read you, I'm just going to go reference it. Don't turn there, though. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this is all referencing that. The new covenant is the righteousness that Abraham, if you know the, the, the uh, section on righteousness in the book of Hebrews, why, what does it talk about the forefathers? Abraham, was, it, was he counted righteous because he obeyed God? Or was he counted righteous because of faith. He's the father of the faithful. I'm just going to read you Romans chapter 4 and verses 4 through 25. 
This passage, and if you want to turn there, you can, but this passage is the reaffirming of the promise of the new covenant a very, very long time ago before God had the concept revealed and ratified. So what I'm saying is, is that in Deuteronomy is, is when he talks about this new concept, but it's in Romans he's talking about the concept being ratified and fulfilled. Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. Now when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. You work, you get paid. However, to the man who does not work, but what? Trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Now, I want to stop there for a second because you know that there is, you heard that it says in other, in other places in Scripture that, you know, if we don't have to work, but if we have faith without works, is that good? God forbid. But we don't need the works for the salvation. Romans chapter 4 and verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David, in the line of Judah, the king of Israel, the man who should be, who is a Jew under the law, what is he saying here? Romans chapter 4 and verse 7, and these are quotes. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. In this blessedness only for the circumcised, is it, or is this blessedness only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? And said, so we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. If you drop down to Romans chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Now listen to this carefully, because we're going to go back to this in Genesis in a few minutes. Now remember what Abraham's name was before it became Abraham? It was Abram. Now remember what Abram means? Anybody? Close. The father of a nation. A nation. God, in Genesis chapter 17, changes Abram's name to Abraham, or Abraham, if you speak like me, Abraham. So therefore, the promise comes by faith so, that, faith, so that, faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all, now listen to this, Abraham's offspring. Now, here's the qualification. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of just Israel? All of us. And it says, as it is written, and this is where it's written back in Genesis 17, he's just requoting it here, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father, the Christian's father, as well as the father of the Jews, because all of us are not from one nation. All of us, our ancestors came from all the nations around the world. Would you say that Abraham, through faith, is our father of faith because we came through many nations? So he is the father of many nations. I just want you to see here that this promise was made not only to Israel, which wasn't even existing yet at the time of Genesis 15, where we are now. But when we roll forward to Genesis 17, it was already determined that the new covenant would be built that it was for Israel, they would reject it, and he would bring many nations in who are pagans, who have no business being involved with anything of God, not only to show his grace, but to make Israel jealous. That's the only relationship we have with the law of Israel 
is to help Israel understand that that is not the end-all and be-all for them. Listen to this. Verse 18 in Romans chapter 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed that believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And you know the rest of the story with his, with his son Isaac, the son of promise. So, in wrapping this up, how did the new covenant scope become enlarged to include the Gentiles? I'm just going to read this to you. It's, it's not that long, but I want, you to I want you to really just listen to this. Just don't turn there. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's in my notes. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 16. But I just want you to listen to this. How do we know the new covenant scope? Remember, we said, we agree, I hope, that it was intended for Israel. But how do we know it was enlarged to include us, the peoples of all of these many nations? Deuteronomy was written in about 1400 B.C., way before Christ came and died and created the way which we call Christianity. So none of this was even in the heart of anybody in those days, but it was in the heart of God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 16, they made him jealous with their foreign gods. They made God jealous with their foreign gods. Israel did that. And angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God, gods that they had not known, gods that they had that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. You deserted the rock, capital R. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isn't that interesting? Here there's a capital R way back in Deuteronomy. So who created them? Who fathered Israel? Jesus Christ, the Word. The Lord saw, the Lord saw this. I'm starting to speak like a New Englander. The Lord saw this. The Lord saw, he saw this. The Lord saw this, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He saw this, that's Yahweh, God the Father, saw this, that they rejected his son, Jesus Christ, the rock, just in the previous verse. You see how this is laid out here? So the Lord saw this and rejected them. And he rejected them because he was angered by his sons, his sons and daughters, Israel. And then he says in quotes here, in Genesis, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 20, I will hide my face from them and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. He's talking about Israel. So you see how this is laid out. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. Now listen to this. And this is applying to you and me. I will make them envious by those who are not a people, I will make them angry. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. That's us. So do you see how the new covenant was ratified for them, but in effect it was given to us? It's our job to give it back to them. That's one of the reasons why it's very important to understand Scripture because, let's face it, and it says here, we're to anger them. And it's not easy to witness to a Jew. Has anybody ever tried witnessing to a Jew or an Israeli? You have? Was it easy? You couldn't understand why I loved him so much. Good. Good answer. Good point. Because I have heard that from so many different people. Not that I've, I've known many who have witnessed directly to Israelis. I've tried myself. They know and they feel that everybody in this world hates them. 
Is it not true? That's part of their punishment. But when you take a people from all of these different nations who love them, that totally confounds them. Totally confounds them. I'm going to give you just a couple of snippets here, and you can jot this down or you can get my notes. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, through chapter 13 and verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, all the way through chapter 13 and 22. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I want to make some points here. Now, here's a sample of the law under or as tempered by grace under the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to listen to this, and I want you to, to think about the Ten Commandments. Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows at least in part what the Ten Commandments are. But every, and here's the point I want to make, every one of those Ten Commandments starts with, you will or you won't. Sounds like laws to me. There is no grace in you will, and there is no grace in you won't. That's law. It's very black and white. There is a law that says this is what you should or this is what you should not do. A lot of times it may not even tell you why, but it is a law. If you break it, there are penalties, very black and white. But I want you now to understand the law as it sits under grace. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, I'm just going to skip around, so just if, you, if you're reading, follow, but just listen for the most part. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Wait a minute. Aren't we commanded to be holy? We are. But here it's put as make every effort. Because Jesus Christ is the one who's going to make this thing work in us. It's not up to us to keep this law because we can't. We have to make the effort to do so, which means that we have to have the intent of the heart to be holy, and we have to let Jesus Christ then help us keep that law. If we go down to uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is, uh, that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom or, and, and storm. You have not come to a mountain to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them. Why? Because they could not bear what was commanded. Do you remember what that's all about? Israel said, God, we're so scared of you we don't want you to be our king. We're too scared of you. Because the law dictates an austere taskmaster to enforce it. And if you look at the Old Testament, God dealt harshly with Israel, and he's still dealing harshly with them. Why? Because it's black and white. You break the law, you pay the penalty. Right? Aren't we going to go into the tribulation? Not for us, because we're not going. But they're going. Why? Because they still have to pay the penalty because they decide that they want to be under the law. So guess what? They are going to live and they are going to die by the law. So it says here, even if an, even, if even an animal, which is, doesn't think like a human being, which doesn't know law from anything else, even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. That's how hard the law is, even on the animal, not only the animal's owner. The sight was so terrifying that Moses, even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But listen to this. You have come. Remember we just talked about this mountain burning with fire? But what about you and me? What about you and me? But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the address of God. You have come to the holy mountain, not of law, 
but where God lives in his gracious presence to the heavenly Jerusalem, it says, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The law has no joy in it, but grace does. That's what I wanted to show you. Verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, be, and, and to the, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember when Abel was slain and God says his blood cries out to me from the ground? Well, see, the blood of Abel was a foretype of the blood of Jesus Christ being murdered by his people. I'm not going to continue, but if you look at Hebrews chapters 12, chapter 12 and 20, verse 25 to the end of uh, chapter 13 and 22, that's talking about the tribulation judgment of Israel still being under the law. Oh, and there are some more here. Uh, I'm not even going to read them, but chapter 13, verse 4, 7, 9, 11, 15, and so on. It talks about some points of how to keep the law under the new covenant. And by the way, isn't Hebrews the book that houses the faith chapter? See how all of this ties together? I want to read you the end of the matter. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes? Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon. Solomon. Who wrote the book of Proverbs? Right. One was at one end of his life, and the other was at the other end of his life. Think of that. Think of that. But here is it in Ecclesiastes verse 12 and chapter 13. I'm sorry, chapter, chapter 12 and verse 13. I get those mixed up. Now he says, all has been heard. You've heard it from me. He's assuming you've heard it, you've read it in, in his books, you've read it in scripture. You, you're, he's assuming you're an Israelite and you've, you've known the law. Ecclesiastes chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. So he says, now all has been heard. The case has been laid before you. You know. You know that God says, I put before you life and death, blessing and cursing. What does he say in Deuteronomy? Choose life that you may live. You know all of this now, right? The law versus grace. But back in Ecclesiastes, he says, now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter, the sum total of the whole thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you're an Israelite, you better do it under the Old Testament, but it's not good enough. But if you're a Christian, you're still supposed to keep his commandments, but under grace. So it applies to both. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep the commandments, for this what? It's the whole duty of man. It's not splitting hairs between Israelite and pagan and Gentile and whatever we are. Remember, I told you, how many peoples does the Bible speak about? I got three fingers up. That's the answer. Three. What are they? Jews, Christians, and everybody else. That's it. doesn't matter if you're an Amalekite or a, or a Philistine. It doesn't matter. You're a pagan. If you're a Jew, you're a Jew. If you're not, you're a Christian. And in Christianity, there is no Jew, Greek, Gentile, or anybody else, right? So there's three. He's talking to these three people groups, but one of them really doesn't understand. Which one is that? The pagans. So he's talking to really two that should understand and be reading this. And those who understand, whoa, there's a bug over here. It's a stink bug. It's Satan put this here. <laughs> Goodbye.
I bet you he did put that there. It just materialized. <laughs> That's the easy thing. I don't believe in that stuff. I'm just going to wrap up with this, and then we're going to take the next f- 10 minutes or so just moving on in my notes. Joshua 22, verses 1 through 5. The Old Testament's law, laws as mutated into the New Testament covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ has not really changed. The law is still the law, but under grace, it is different. It is, it is mutated. Joshua 22, verses 1 through 5. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I have commanded. That's pretty good. For a long time now, even to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he promised, they're in the land at this point, in Canaan, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to get there shortly in Genesis, where they actually, well, not Genesis, but later on, but we're talking about returning to the promised land. They enter over the Jordan into Jericho, which you probably remember the story of Jericho. That's when they first get in there. But this is what he's reviewing with them. So you entered into the promised land that God gave you, Verse 5, as you're living there, is my paraphrase, but as you're living there, listen to this, be very careful to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. Now, I want you to get this before we go further and we wrap this section up. The law under Moses is the law for Israel, not for us. Who's our lawgiver? Jesus Christ. Okay? Very separate things. So, but listen to this. Now, having no, now that we know that, keep that in mind and read the rest of it. So he says, the, be very careful to observe the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. And does it start listing 613 laws? Does it? It says, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart, all your soul. Isn't that the sum of the sum of the matter? That's all I wanted to show you in these last two weeks. If you understand this, then the rest is just detail. (laughs) You will know your place in God's plan. If you don't understand this, you as a Christian know your place as a Christian. But that is about as far as you're going to go. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Unfortunately, in the church I was in, we were still under the law of Moses because we were told you had to be. That was a hard thing to do. We felt condemned all the time. All the time. And I am just so grateful that God called us out of that as a family. Because some of Rachel's family is still in this. And he called us out while our children were still young. Because I would not want them to grow up under the law like that. Never. Never. It would break my heart to make them keep a Sabbath or not eat pork or do some of these crazy things for us that are crazy. But for Israel, they're not. So please, 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 as a Christian, don't make a law out of things that are not a law. You know what? I'm going to tell you. Wine is wine. God says in Scripture, you can drink strong drink. You want me to prove it to you? I can. Now, if, if to you it's abhorrent to drink wine, then don't do it because to you it's sin. But don't be looking for others who do this thing and say they're sinning because you think it's sin. Never go to an Israelite and if they eat pork, 
say it's okay for them. But if you as a Christian eat pork, is it okay for you? But should you eat, should you be devouring a nice, you know, bucket of pig, whatever, you know, maybe, maybe KFC ran out of chicken and they got a bucket of pig stuff. If you ate that in front of a Jew, who is sinning, the Jew or you? Never do, and that's, that's the whole matter. The sum of the matter is love yourself. The, the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them, right? Did you know they're split down the middle? What are the first five commandments about? How to love God, right? And what are the last five about? This is the sum of the matter. Okay, am I making it clear enough? I'd be blessed by it, because I was blessed by it. And if, you, if you're not blessed by it, concentrate on it. Ask the Lord to reveal more about it, and you will. Now we're going to take five minutes and go back to our main notes. Please turn to chapter Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 15. And by the way, be here next week because as we move forward, we're going to, I'm going to really talk to you about some interesting things. About, I'm going to use those maps. You didn't get it to them today. And I'm, but hopefully you'll, you'll be able to maybe blow those up this week. Thank you. We're going to talk about some things that are really going to, if you understand the migration of certain peoples, which I found out is very valuable, it will make Scripture so clear about how things are going and why they're there. We're going to go back and revisit. Remember the Nephilim we talked about? There's another eruption of them coming. Remember the flood? Why everybody had to be destroyed? Well, they had to be destroyed again. Everybody, man, woman, and child. It didn't matter. God, most people say, is crazy. He's just so angry to destroy children. Why would he do that? And he point to the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, and says, kill everybody, man, woman, and child. And that's why they hate God, because they don't understand. But he's talking about a race of people that are right from the Amorites, descended, if you will, from the Nephilim. Because their king was King Og, whose bedstead was 13 feet long and made of iron. It says that. Why? How do you big, the Goliath came from these people. We talked all about that. There's going to be another eruption. And the point is, is we're going to get to that next week. God expands on the unconditional promises in verse 15, uh, chapter, chap, Genesis 15, chapter 4. The word of the Lord came to Abram. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. Basically, uh, Abraham was saying, I have no heir. You promised me a son. It's going to have to be one of my servants that are going to be, uh, be the heir because I have no son. He's saying, I don't, I don't trust you, God. He's saying, no, 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 Abram, this guy's not going to be your heir. It will be a son from your own body. Then the, uh, so he says, and he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, Abram, if indeed you can even count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So then he says, I am the Lord of God. And he reviews some things. I brought you out of Ur, the Chaldees, and gave you this land, Canaan, which he's now in possession of. Or he, and he says it's for his heirs. Now I want you to get this. So verse 8 in Genesis 15, But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, um, along with a dove and a young pigeon. He, these animals are going to be slaughtered, but not for the point of sacrifice that we know of. Why, are animals, why were animals slaughtered in Israel at the temple? Pay for sins. Okay, so listen to this. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds of prey, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcass, but, above, but Abram drove them away. And in my notes, I'm just going to mention this. 
when you're talking, a lot of times scripture uses birds or birds of prey as, um, as a metaphor for demons. So just think of that. The birds of prey are now seeing these sacrifices, or not sacrifice, I want to use this word sacrifice. Seeing these, these animals that are being used for a special purpose, and they're going to come. And I think this is symbolic of trying to make something turn out bad from all of this. Do you get what I'm saying? But, so, and that's why it said, why does it even say, who cares if Abraham had to drive them away? It's just, who cares? Why is that in scripture? Who cares, you know? It's like saying, I had a picnic and I had a great time with my wife and my kids, but the ants came and started eating the food and I had to drive them away. It's like, would you say that if you said you were having a picnic? Who cares? There's a reason why everything's in scripture. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. What country is that? Egypt. Egypt. How many years? If you were Satan listening into this conversation, where are they going to be? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to get? Canaan. How many years is it going to take them to get this land? I mean, they're going to be in Egypt, but they're going to come out of Egypt. We already know because God said, I'm promising you the land of Canaan, right? I want you to make believe, only make believe because you don't want to be this. Make believe you're Satan listening in on this conversation. Now, in this game of chess, and we're going to wrap up here in, a, in, a, yeah, in a minute right now. In this game of chess, you're Satan, and you know that God has promised a nation through Abram. You know that now. So now you know who to target. And you know that they're going to get a land called Canaan. Now you know the land that they're going to get. So you know the land that you have to pollute. You also know now that you have a span of about 400 years to develop your countermeasure in this game of chess. Get my drift? And then says, but then he says, right on the heels of that, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. So they go to Egypt, they come out with great possessions, you know, the Passover and a whole bit, going through the Red Sea. They finally wander for how many years? 40. And then they wind up in going through over the River Jordan into Jericho, conquering Jericho, and then they take Canaan, the rest of Canaan. And then they settle there. But that's, not, that's 400 years in the future. Then he says here in verse 15, You, Abram, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Now listen to this. I'm going to wrap up right now. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. I want you to understand something. These Amorites, we're going to trace them next week. Because again, this is a little passage that you might gloss over. Well, I'm going to wait this period of time, God says, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, which means to me, these Amorites, their sin is going to reach the full measure at some point, and they're going to factor greatly in Satan's countermove which God is allowing to develop to, to start to work against God and then he's going to develop his move. It's a big game of chess, right? I want you to see the strategy. I'm going to talk about that next week. So have a wonderful week, everybody.